This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn. And welcome back to The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins. This time, Narrative 3, Chapters 5 and 6. And here we enter while Betteridge and Franklin Blake are trying to get to the bottom of this mystery. Our narrative continues. Having told me the name of Mr. Candy's assistant... Betteredge appeared to think that we had wasted enough of our time on an insignificant subject. He resumed the perusal of Rosanna Spearman's letter. On my side, I sat at the window, waited until he had done. Little by little, the impression produced on me by Ezra Jennings, it seemed perfectly unaccountable, in such a situation as mine, that any human being should have produced an impression on me at all. Faded from my mind... My thoughts flowed back into their former channel. Once more, I forced myself to look my own incredible position resolutely in the face. Once more, I reviewed in my own mind the course which I had at last summoned composure enough to plan out for the future. To go back to London that day, to put the whole case before Mr. Bruff, and last and most important, to obtain, no matter by what means or at what sacrifice, a personal interview with Rachel, this was my plan of action, so far as I was capable of forming it at the time. There was more than an hour still to spare before the train started, and there was the bare chance that Betteredge might discover something in the unread portion of Rosanna Spearman's letter, which it might be useful for me to know before I left the house in which the diamond had been lost. For that chance, I was now waiting. The letter ended in these terms. "'You have no need to be angry, Mr. Franklin, "'even if I did feel some little triumph "'at knowing that I held all your prospects in life in my own hands. "'Anxieties and fears soon come back to me. "'With the view Sergeant Cuff took of the loss of the diamond, "'he would be sure to end in examining our linen and our dresses. "'There was no place in my room. "'There was no place in the house, "'which I could feel satisfied would be safe from him.' how to hide the nightgown so that not even the sergeant could find it, and how to do that without losing one moment of precious time. These were not easy questions to answer. My uncertainties ended in my taking away that may make you laugh. I undressed and put the nightgown on me. You had worn it, and I had another little moment of pleasure in wearing it after you. The next news that reached us in the servants' hall showed that I had not made sure of the nightgown a moment too soon. 
Sergeant Cup wanted to see the washing book. I found it and took it to him in my lady's sitting room. The sergeant and I had come across each other more than once in former days. I was certain he would know me again, and I was not certain of what he might do when he found me employed as servant in a house in which a valuable jewel had been lost. In this suspense, I felt it would be a relief to me to get the meeting between us over and to know the worst of it at once. He looked at me as if I was a stranger when I handed him the washing book, and he was very specially polite in thanking me for bringing it. I thought those were both bad signs. There was no knowing what he might say of me behind my back. There was no knowing how soon I might not find myself taken in custody on suspicion, and searched. It was then time for your return from seeing Mr. Godfrey Abelwhite off by the railway, and I went to your favorite walk in the shrubbery to try for another chance of speaking to you, the last chance, for all I knew to the contrary, that I might have. You never appeared, and— what was worse still, Mr. Betteredge and Sergeant Cuff passed by the place where I was hiding, and the sergeant saw me. I had no choice after that but to return to my proper place and my proper work before more disasters happened to me. Just as I was going to step across the path, you came back from the railway. You were making straight for the shrubbery when you saw me. I am certain, sir, you saw me. And you turned away, as if I had got the plague— and went into the house. Note by Franklin Blake. The writer is entirely mistaken, poor creature. I never noticed her. My intention was certainly to have taken a turn in the shrubbery, but remembering at the same moment that my aunt might wish to see me, after my return from the railway, I altered my mind and went into the house. Rosanna Spearman's narrative continues. I made the best of my way indoors again, returning by the servant's entrance. There was nobody in the laundry room at that time, and I sat down there alone. I have told you already of the thoughts which the shivering sand put into my head. Those thoughts came back to me now. I wondered in myself which it would be harder to do, if things went on in this manner, to bear Mr. Franklin Blake's indifference to me, or to jump into the quicksand and end it forever in that way. It's useless to ask me to account for my own conduct at this time. I try— "'and I can't understand it myself. "'Why didn't I stop you "'when you avoided me in that cruel manner? "'Why didn't I call out, "'Mr. Franklin, I've got something to say to you. "'It concerns yourself, "'and you must and shall hear it. "'You were at my mercy. "'I got the whip-hand of you, as they say. "'And better than that, I had the means, "'if I could only make you trust me, "'of being useful to you in the future. "'Of course, I never supposed that you—' A gentleman had stolen the diamond for the mere pleasure of stealing it. No, Penelope had heard Miss Rachel, and I had heard Mr. Betteredge talk about your extravagance and your debts. It was plain enough to me that you had taken the diamond to sell it, or pledge it, and so to get the money of which you stood in need. Well, I could have told you of a man in London who would have advanced a good large sum on the jewel. "'and who would have asked no awkward questions about it either. "'Why didn't I speak to you? "'Why didn't I speak to you? "'I wonder whether the risks and difficulties of keeping the nightgown "'were as much as I could manage "'without having other risks and difficulties added to them. "'This might have been the case with some women, "'but how could it be the case with me? "'In the days when I was a thief, 
I had run fifty times greater risks and found my way out of difficulties to which this difficulty was mere child's play. I had been apprenticed, as you may say, to frauds and deceptions, some of them on a grand scale, and managed so cleverly that they became famous and appeared in the newspapers. Was such a little thing as the keeping of the nightgown likely to weigh on my spirits and to set my heart sinking within me at the time when I ought to have spoken to you? What nonsense to ask the question! The thing couldn't be. Where's the use of my dwelling in this way on my own folly? The plain truth is plain enough, surely. Behind your back, I loved you with all my heart and soul. Before your face, there's no denying it. I was frightened of you. Frightened of making you angry with me. Frightened of what you might say to me. Though you had taken the diamond. If I presumed to tell you that I had found it out. I had gone as near to it as I dared when I spoke to you in the library. You had not turned your back on me then. You had not started away from me as I'd got the plague. I tried to provoke myself into feeling angry with you and to rouse up my courage in that way. No, I couldn't feel anything but the misery and the mortification of it. You are a plain girl. You've got a crooked shoulder. You're only a housemaid. What do you mean by attempting to speak to me? That seemed to be your attitude. You never uttered a word of that, Mr. Franklin, but you said it all to me, nevertheless. Is such madness as this to be accounted for? No, there is nothing to be done but to confess it, and let it be. I ask your pardon once more for this wandering of my pen. There is no fear of it happening again. I'm close at the end now. The first person who disturbed me by coming into the empty room was Penelope. She had found out my secret long since, and she had done her best to bring me to my senses, and done it kindly, too. Ah, she said, I know why you're sitting here and fretting, all by yourself. The best thing that can happen for your advantage, Rosanna, will be for Mr. Franklin's visit here to come to an end. It's my belief that he won't be long now before he leaves the house. In all my thoughts of you, I had never thought of your going away. I couldn't speak to Penelope. I could only look at her. I have just left Miss Rachel, Penelope went on, and a hard matter I have had of it to put up with her temper. She says the house is unbearable to her with the police in it, and she's determined to speak to my lady this evening and to go to her aunt Abelwhite tomorrow. If she does that, Mr. Franklin will be the next to find a reason for going away. You may depend on it. I recovered the use of my tongue at that. Do you mean to say Mr. Franklin will go with her? I asked. Only too gladly, if she would let him. But she won't. He has been made to feel her temper. He is in her black books, too, and that after having done all he can to help her, poor fellow. No, if they don't make it up before tomorrow, you will see Miss Rachel go one way and Mr. Franklin another. Where he may betake himself to, I can't say, but he will never stay here, Rosanna, after Miss Rachel has left us. I managed to master the despair I felt at the prospect of your going away. To own the truth, I saw a little glimpse of hope for myself if there was really a serious disagreement between Miss Rachel and you. Do you know, I asked, what the quarrel is between them? It is all on Miss Rachel's side, Penelope said. And for anything I know to the contrary, it's all Miss Rachel's temper and nothing else. I am loath to distress you, Rosanna, 
"'but don't run away with the notion "'that Mr. Franklin's ever likely to quarrel with her. "'He's a great deal too fond of her for that. "'She had only just spoken those cruel words "'when there came a call to us from Mr. Betteredge. "'All the indoor servants were to resemble in the hall. "'And then we were to go in, one by one, "'and be questioned in Mr. Betteredge's room by Sergeant Cuff. "'It came to my turn to go in, "'after her ladyship's maid and the upper housemaid "'had been questioned first. Sergeant Cuff's inquiries, though he wrapped them up very cunningly, soon showed me that those two women, the bitterest enemies I had in the house, had made their discoveries outside my door on the Tuesday afternoon, and again on the Thursday night. They had told the sergeant enough to open his eyes to some part of the truth. He rightly believed me to have made a new nightgown secretly, but he wrongly believed the paint-stained nightgown to be mine." I felt satisfied of another thing, from what he said, which had puzzled me to understand. He suspected me, of course, of being concerned in the disappearance of the diamond. But at the same time, he let me see, purposely, as I thought, that he did not consider me as the person chiefly answerable for the loss of the jewel. He appeared to think that I had been acting under the direction of somebody else. Who that person might be, I couldn't guess then, and I can't guess now. In this uncertainty, one thing was plain, that Sergeant Cuff was miles away from knowing the whole truth. You were safe as long as the nightgown was safe, and not a moment longer. I quite despair of making you understand the distress and terror which pressed upon me now. It was impossible for me to risk wearing your nightgown any longer. I might find myself taken off, at a moment's notice, to the police court at prison hall, to be charged on suspicion, and searched accordingly. While Sergeant Cuff still left me free, I had to choose, and at once, between destroying the nightgown or hiding it in some safe place, at some safe distance from the house. If I'd only been a little less fond of you, I think I should have destroyed it. But, oh, how could I destroy the only thing I had which proved that I had saved you from discovery? If we did come to an explanation together, and if you suspected me of having some bad motive and denied it all, "'How could I win upon you to trust me, "'unless I had the nightgown to produce? "'Was it wronging you to believe, as I did and do still, "'that you might hesitate to let a poor girl like me "'be the sharer of your secret, "'and your accomplice in the theft "'which your money troubles had tempted you to commit? "'Think of your cold behavior to me, sir, "'and you will hardly wonder at my unwillingness "'to destroy the only claim on your confidence "'and your gratitude which it was my fortune to possess.' I determined to hide it, and the place I fixed on was the place I knew best, the shivering sand. As soon as the questioning was over, I made the first excuse that came into my head, and got leave to go out for a breath of fresh air. I went straight to Cobb's Hole, to Mr. Yolan's cottage. His wife and daughter were the best friends I had. Don't suppose I trusted them with your secret. I have trusted nobody. All I wanted was to write this letter to you, "'and to have a safe opportunity of taking the nightgown off me. "'Suspected as I was, "'I could do neither of those things with any sort of security at the house. "'And now I have nearly got through my long letter, "'writing it alone in Lucy Yolan's bedroom. "'When it is done, I shall go downstairs with the nightgown rolled up "'and hidden under my cloak. "'I shall find the means I want for keeping it safe and dry in its hiding place, "'among the litter of old things in Mrs. Yolan's kitchen.' "'and then I shall go to the shivering sand. "'Don't be afraid of my letting my footmarks betray me. 
and hide the nightgown down in the sand, where no living creature can find it without being first let into the secret by myself. And when that's done, what then? Then, Mr. Franklin, I shall have two reasons for making another attempt to say the words to you which I have not yet said. If you leave the house, as Penelope believes you will leave it, and if I haven't spoken to you before that, I shall lose my opportunity forever. That is one reason. Then again, there is the comforting knowledge, if my speaking does make you angry, that I've got the nightgown ready to plead my cause for me as nothing else can. That's my other reason. If these two together don't harden my heart against the coldness which has hitherto frozen it up, I mean the coldness of your treatment of me, there will be the end of my efforts and the end of my life. Yes, if I miss my next opportunity, if you are as cruel as ever, and if I feel it again as I've felt it already, goodbye to the world which has grudged me the happiness that it gives to others. Goodbye to life which nothing but a little kindness from you could ever make pleasurable to me again. Don't blame yourself, sir, if it ends in this way. But try, do try, to feel some forgiving sorrow for me. I shall take care that you find out what I've done for you when I'm past telling you of it myself. Will you say something kind of me then, in the same gentle way that you have when you speak to Miss Rachel? If you do that, and if there are such things as ghosts, I believe my ghost will hear it and tremble with the pleasure of it. It's time I left off. I am making myself cry. How am I to see my way to the hiding place if I let these useless tears come and blind me? Besides, why should I look at the gloomy side? Why not believe, while I can, that it will end well after all? I may find you in a good humor tonight, or if not, I may succeed better tomorrow morning. I shan't improve my plain face by fretting, shall I? Who knows but I may have filled all those weary long pages of paper for nothing. They will go, for safety's sake, never mind now for what other reason, into the hiding place, along with the nightgown. It has been hard, hard work writing my letter. Oh, if we only end in understanding each other, how I shall enjoy tearing it up. I beg to remain, sir, your true lover and humble servant, Rosanna Spearman. The reading of the letter was completed by Bedridge in silence. After carefully putting it back in the envelope, he sat thinking, with his head bowed down and his eyes on the ground. Bedridge, I said, is there any hint to guide me at the end of the letter? He looked up slowly, with a heavy sigh. There is nothing to guide you, Mr. Franklin, he answered. If you take my advice, you'll keep the letter in the cover till these present anxieties of yours have come to an end. It will sorely distress you whenever you read it. Don't read it now. I put the letter away in my pocketbook. A glance back at the 16th and 17th chapters of Better Edge's narrative will show that there really was a reason for my thus sparing myself at a time when my fortitude had been already cruelly tried. Twice over, the unhappy woman had made her last attempt to speak to me, and twice over, it had been my misfortune, God knows how innocently, to repel the advances she had made to me. On the Friday night, as Better Edge truly describes it, she had found me alone at the billiard table. Her manner and language suggested to me 
and would have suggested to any man, under the circumstances, that she was about to confess a guilty knowledge of the disappearance of the diamond. For her own sake, I had purposely shown no special interest in what was coming. For her own sake, I purposely looked at the billiard balls instead of looking at her. And what had been the result? I'd sent her away from me, wounded to the heart. On the Saturday again, on the day when she must have foreseen, after what Penelope had told her, that my departure was close at hand, the same fatality still pursued us. She had once more attempted to meet me in the shrubbery walk, and she had found me there in company with Betteredge and Sergeant Cuff. In her hearing, the sergeant, with his own underhand object in view, had appealed to my interest in Rosanna Spearman. Again, for the poor creature's own sake, I had met the police officer with a flat denial, and had declared, loudly declared, so that she might hear me too, that I felt no interest whatever in Rosanna Spearman. At those words, solely designed to warn her against attempting to gain my private ear, she had turned away and left the place, cautioned of her danger, as I then believed, self-doomed to destruction, as I know now. From that point, I've already traced the succession of events which led me to the astounding discovery at the quicksand. The retrospect is now complete. I may leave the miserable story of Rosanna Spearman, to which, even at this distance of time, I cannot revert without a pang of distress, to suggest for itself all that is here purposely left unsaid. I may pass from the suicide at the shivering sand, with its strange and terrible influence on my present position and future prospects, to interests which concern the living people of this narrative, and to events which were already paving my way for the slow and toilsome journey from the darkness to the light. We'll return with Chapter 6 right after these sponsor messages. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now Chapter 6 of The Third Narrative from The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins. I walked to the railway station accompanied, it is needless to say, by Gabriel Betteredge. I had the letter in my pocket and the nightgown safely packed in a little bag, both to be submitted, before I slept that night, to the investigation of Mr. Bruff. We left the house in silence. For the first time in my experience of him, I found old Betteredge in my company without a word to say to me. Having something to say on my side, I opened the conversation as soon as we were clear of the lodge gates. Before I go to London, I began, I have two questions to ask you. 
"'They were late to myself, "'and I believe they will rather surprise you.' "'If they will put that poor creature's letter "'out of my head, Mr. Franklin, "'they may do anything else they like with me. "'Please to begin surprising me, sir, "'as soon as you can.' "'My first question, Petteredge, is this. "'Was I drunk on the night of Rachel's birthday?' "'You? Drunk?' exclaimed the old man. "'Why, it's the great defect of your character, Mr. Franklin, "'that you only drink with your dinner "'and never touch a drop of liquor afterwards.' "'But the birthday was a special occasion. "'I might have abandoned my regular habits "'on that night of all others.' Edge considered for a moment. "'You did go out of your habits, sir,' he said, "'and I'll tell you how. "'You looked wretchedly ill.' "'and we persuaded you to have a drop of brandy and water "'to cheer you up a little. "'I'm not used to brandy and water. "'It is quite possible. "'Wait a bit, Mr. Franklin. "'I knew you were not used to that, too. "'I poured you out half a wine-glassful "'of our fifty-year-old cognac, "'and more, and, more shame for me, "'I drowned that noble liquor "'in nigh a tumblerful of cold water. "'A child couldn't have got drunk on it. "'let alone a grown man. "'I knew I could depend on his memory "'in a manner of this kind. "'It was plainly impossible "'that I could have been intoxicated. "'I passed on to the second question. "'Before I was sent to Broad Edge, "'you saw a great deal of me when I was a boy. "'Now tell me plainly, "'do you remember anything strange of me "'after I'd gone to bed at night? "'Did you ever discover me "'walking in my sleep?' Better Edge stopped, looked at me for a moment, nodded his head, and walked on again. "'I see your drift now, Mr. Franklin,' he said. "'You're trying to account for how you got the paint on your nightgown without knowing it yourself. "'It won't do, sir. You're miles away still from getting at the truth. "'Walk in your sleep? You never did such a thing in your life.' Here again I felt that Better Edge must be right. Neither at home nor abroad had my life ever been of the solitary sort. If I'd been a sleepwalker, there were hundreds on hundreds of people who must have discovered me, and who, in the interest of my own safety, would have warned me of the habit, and have taken precautions to restrain it. Still, admitting all this, I clung, with an obstinacy which was surely natural and excusable under the circumstances. "'to one or other of the only two explanations that I could see "'which accounted for the unendurable position in which I then stood. "'Observing that I was not yet satisfied, "'Betteredge shrewdly averted to certain later events "'in the history of the Moonstone, "'and scattered both my theories to the wind at once and forever. "'Let's try it another way, sir,' he said. "'Keep your own opinion, "'and see how far it will take you towards finding out the truth.' "'If we are to believe the nightgown, which I don't, for one, "'you not only smeared off the paint from the door without knowing it, "'but you also took the diamond without knowing it. "'Is that right so far?' "'Yes, quite right. Go on.' "'Very good, sir. "'We'll say you were drunk or walking in your sleep when you took the jewel. "'That accounts for the night and morning after the birthday. "'But how does it account for what has happened since that time?' The diamond has been taken to London since that time. 
"'The diamond has been pledged to Mr. Luker since that time. "'Did you do those two things without knowing it, too? "'Were you drunk when I saw you off in the pony chaise on that Saturday evening? "'And did you walk in your sleep to Mr. Luker's "'when the train had brought you to your journey's end?' "'Excuse me for saying it, Mr. Franklin, "'but this business has so upset you "'that you're not fit yet to judge for yourself. "'The sooner you lay your head alongside Mr. Bruff's head, "'the sooner you will see your way out of the deadlock "'that has got you now.' "'We reached the station with only a minute or two to spare. "'I hurriedly gave Betteredge my address in London "'so that he might write to me, if necessary, "'promising, on my side, to inform him of any news which I might have to communicate. This done, and just as I was bidding him farewell, I happened to glance towards the book and newspaper stall. There was Mr. Candy's remarkable-looking assistant again, speaking to the keeper of the stall. Our eyes met at the same moment. Ezra Jennings took off his hat to me. I returned the salute, and got into a carriage just as the train started. It was a relief to my mind, I suppose, to dwell on any subject which appeared to be, personally, of no sort of importance to me. At all events, I began the momentous journey back which was to take me to Mr. Bruff, wondering, absurdly enough, I admit, that I should have seen the man with the piebald hair twice in one day. The hour at which I arrived in London precluded all hope of my finding Mr. Bruff at his place of business. I drove from the railway to his private residence at Hampstead, and disturbed the old lawyer dozing alone in his dining-room, with his favorite pug dog on his lap, and his bottle of wine at his elbow. I shall best describe the effect which my story produced on the mind of Mr. Bruff by relating his proceedings when he had heard it to the end. He ordered lights and strong tea to be taken into his study, and he sent a message to the ladies of his family— "'forbidding them to disturb us on any pretense whatever. "'These preliminaries disposed of, "'he first examined the nightgown, "'and then devoted himself to the reading of Rosanna Spearman's letter. "'The reading completed, "'Mr. Bruff addressed me for the first time "'since we had been shut up together "'in the seclusion of his own room. "'Franklin Blake,' said the old gentleman, "'this is a very serious matter, "'in more respects than one.' In my opinion, it concerns Rachel quite as nearly as it concerns you. Her extraordinary conduct is no mystery now. She believes you have stolen the diamond. I had shrunk from reasoning my own way fairly to that revolting conclusion, but it had forced itself on me nevertheless. My resolution to obtain a personal interview with Rachel rested really and truly on the ground just stated by Mr. Bruff. "'The first step to take in this investigation,' the lawyer proceeded, "'is to appeal to Rachel. "'She has been silent all this time, "'from motives which I, who know her character, can readily understand. "'It is impossible, after what has happened, "'to submit to that silence any longer. "'She must be persuaded to tell us, "'or she must be forced to tell us, "'on what grounds she bases her belief "'that you took the moonstone.' The chances are that the whole of this case, serious as it seems now, will tumble to pieces if we can only break through Rachel's inveterate reserve and prevail upon her to speak out. 
"'That is a very comforting opinion for me,' I said. "'I own I should like to know.' "'You would like to know how I can justify it,' interposed Mr. Bruff. "'I can tell you in two minutes. "'Understand, in the first place, "'that I look at this matter from a lawyer's point of view. "'It is a question of evidence with me. "'Very well. "'The evidence breaks down, at the outset, "'on one important point. "'On what point?' "'You shall hear. "'I admit that the mark of the name "'proves the nightgown to be yours. "'I admit that the mark of the paint "'proves the nightgown to have made the smear "'on Rachel's door. "'But what evidence is there to prove that you "'are the person who wore it "'on the night when the diamond was lost?' "'The objection struck me "'all the more forcibly "'that it reflected an objection "'which I felt myself. "'As to this,' "'pursued the lawyer, taking up Rosanna Spearman's confession. "'I can understand that the letter is a distressing one to you. "'I can understand that you may hesitate to analyze it "'from a purely impartial point of view. "'But I am not in your position. "'I can bring my professional experience to bear on this document, "'just as I should bring it to bear on any other. "'Without alluding to the woman's career as a thief, "'I will merely remark that her letter proves... "'her to have been an adept at deception, on her own showing, "'and I argue from that that I am justified in suspecting her "'of not having told the whole truth. "'I won't start any theory at present "'as to what she may or may not have done. "'I will only say that, if Rachel has suspected you, "'on the evidence of the nightgown only, "'the chances are ninety-nine to a hundred "'that Rosanna Spearman was the person who showed it to her.' In that case, there is the woman's letter, confessing that she was jealous of Rachel, confessing that she changed the roses, confessing that she saw a glimpse of hope for herself in the prospect of a quarrel between Rachel and you. I don't stop to ask who took the moonstone. As a means to her end, Rosanna Spearman would have taken fifty moonstones. I only say that the disappearance of the jewel gave this reclaimed thief who was in love with you an opportunity of setting you and Rachel at variance for the rest of your lives. She had not decided on destroying herself then, remember, and having the opportunity, I distinctly assert that it was in her character and in her position at the time to take it. What do you say to that? Some such suspicion, I answered, crossed my own mind as soon as I opened the letter. Exactly. "'and when you had read the letter, you pitied the poor creature "'and couldn't find it in your heart to suspect her. "'Does you credit, my dear sir? Does you credit?' "'But suppose it turns out that I did wear the nightgown. What then?' "'I don't see how the fact can be proved,' said Mr. Bruff. "'But assuming the proof to be possible, "'the vindication of your innocence would be no easy matter. "'We won't go into that now.' "'Let us wait and see whether Rachel hasn't suspected you "'on the evidence of the nightgown only.' "'Good God, how coolly you talk of Rachel suspecting me!' "'I broke out. "'What right has she to suspect me, on any evidence, of being a thief?' "'A very sensible question, my dear sir. "'Rather hotly put, but well worth considering for all that. "'What puzzles you puzzles me, too.' "'Search your memory and tell me this. "'Did anything happen while you were staying at the house? "'Not, of course, to shake Rachel's belief in your honor. 
but, let us say, to shake her belief, no matter with how little reason, in your principles, generally. I started, in ungovernable agitation, to my feet. The lawyer's question reminded me, for the first time since I had left England, that something had happened. In the eighth chapter of Better Edge's narrative, an allusion will be found to the arrival of a foreigner and a stranger to my aunt's house, who came to see me on business. The nature of his business was this. I had been foolish enough, being as usual, straightened for money at the time, to accept a loan from a keeper of a small restaurant in Paris, to whom I was well known as a customer. A time was settled between us for paying the money back, and when the time came, I found it, as thousands of other honest men have found it, impossible to keep my engagement. I sent the man a bill. My name was unfortunately too well known on such documents. He failed to negotiate it. His affairs had fallen into disorder in the interval since I borrowed of him. Bankruptcy stared him in the face, and a relative of his, a French lawyer, came to England to find me, and to insist upon the payment of my debt. He was a man of violent temper, and he took the wrong way with me. High words passed on both sides, and my aunt and Rachel were unfortunately in the next room, and heard us. Lady Verinder came in, and insisted on knowing what was the matter. The Frenchman produced his credentials, and declared me to be responsible for the ruin of a poor man, who had trusted in my honor. My aunt instantly paid him the money, and sent him off. She knew me better, of course, than to take the Frenchman's view of the transaction. But she was shocked at my carelessness, and justly angry with me for placing myself in a position which, but for her interference, might have become a very disgraceful one. Either her mother told her, or Rachel heard what passed. I can't say which. She took her own romantic, high-flown view of the matter. I was heartless. I was dishonorable. I had no principles. There was no knowing what I might do next. In short, she said some of the severest things to me which I had ever heard from a young lady's lips. The breach between us lasted for the whole of the next day. The day after, I succeeded in making my peace, and thought no more of it. Had Rachel reverted to this unlucky accident, at the critical moment when my place in her estimation was again, and far more seriously, assailed? Mr. Bruff, when I had mentioned the circumstances to him, answered the question at once in the affirmative. "'It would have its effect on her mind,' he said gravely. "'And I wish, for your sake, the thing had not happened. "'However, we have discovered that there was a predisposing influence against you. "'And there is one uncertainty cleared out of our way, at any rate. "'I see nothing more that we can do now. "'Our next step in this inquiry must be the step that takes us to Rachel.' "'He rose and began walking thoughtfully up and down the room.' Twice I was on the point of telling him that I had determined on seeing Rachel personally, and twice, having a regard to his age and his character, I hesitated to take him by surprise at an unfavorable moment. "'The grand difficulty is,' he resumed, "'how to make her show her whole mind in this matter without reserve. "'Have you any suggestions to offer?' "'I have made up my mind, Mr. Bruff, to speak to Rachel myself.' "'You?' He suddenly stopped in his walk, and looked at me as if he thought I'd taken leave of my senses. "'You!' 
"'of all people in the world!' "'He abruptly checked himself "'and took another turn in the room. "'Wait a little,' he said. "'In cases of this extraordinary kind, "'the rash way is sometimes the best way.' "'He considered the question for a moment or two "'under that new light, "'and ended boldly by a decision in my favor. "'Nothing ventured, nothing gained,' "'the old gentleman resumed. "'You have a chance in your favor which I don't possess, "'and you should be the first to try the experiment.' "'A chance in my favor?' I repeated, in the greatest surprise. Mr. Bruff's face softened, for the first time, into a smile. "'This is how it stands,' he said. "'I tell you fairly. I don't trust your discretion, and I don't trust your temper. But I do trust in Rachel's still preserving, in some remote little corner of her heart, a certain perverse weakness for you. Touch that.' "'and trust to the consequences for the fullest disclosures "'that can flow from a woman's lips. "'The question is, how are you to see her?' "'She's been a guest of yours at this house,' I answered. "'May I venture to suggest, if nothing was said about me beforehand, "'that I might see her here?' "'Cole,' said Mr. Bruff. "'With that one word of comment on the reply that I had made to him, "'he took another turn up and down the room. "'In plain English,' he said, "'my house is to be turned into a trap to catch Rachel, "'with a bait to tempt her, "'in the shape of an invitation from my wife and daughters. "'If you were anybody else but Franklin Blake, "'and if this matter was one atom less serious than it really is, "'I would refuse point-blank. "'As things are, "'I firmly believe Rachel will live to thank me "'for turning traitor to her in my old age.' "'Consider me your accomplice. "'Rachel shall be asked to spend the day here, "'and you shall receive due notice of it. "'When, tomorrow? "'Tomorrow won't give us time enough to get her answer. "'Say, the day after. "'How shall I hear from you? "'Stay at home all the morning and expect me to call on you.' "'I thanked him for the inestimable assistance "'which he was rendering to me, "'with the gratitude that I really felt.' and declining a hospitable invitation to sleep that night at Hampstead, returned to my lodgings in London. Of the day that followed, I have only to say that it was the longest day of my life. Innocent as I knew myself to be, certain as I was that the abominable imputation which rested on me must sooner or later be cleared off, there was nevertheless a sense of self-abasement in my mind which instinctively disinclined me to see any of my friends. We often hear... "'almost invariably, however, from superficial observers, "'that guilt can look like innocence. "'I believe it to be infinitely the truer axiom of the two "'that innocence can look like guilt. "'I caused myself to be denied all day "'to every visitor who called, "'and I only ventured out under cover of night. "'The next morning Mr. Bruff surprised me at the breakfast-table. "'He handed me a large key "'and announced that he felt ashamed of himself "'for the first time in his life.' "'Is she coming?' "'She's coming today, to lunch and to spend the afternoon with my wife and my girls. "'Are Mrs. Bruff and your daughters in the secret?' "'Inevitably. But women, as you may have observed, have no principles. "'My family don't feel my pangs of conscience. "'The end being to bring you and Rachel together again. "'My wife and daughters pass over the means employed to gain it, "'as composedly as if they were Jesuits.' 
"'I am infinitely obliged to them. "'What is this key?' "'The key of the gate in my back garden wall. "'Be there at three this afternoon. "'Let yourself into the garden "'and make your way in by the conservatory door. "'Cross the small drawing-room "'and open the door in front of you "'which leads into the music-room. "'There you will find Rachel, "'and find her alone.' "'How can I thank you? "'I will tell you how. "'Don't blame me for what happens afterwards.' "'With those words, he went out. "'I had many weary hours still to wait through. "'To while away the time, I looked at my letters. "'Among them was a letter from Betteredge. "'I opened it eagerly. "'To my surprise and disappointment, "'it began with an apology, "'warning me to expect no news of any importance. "'In the next sentence, the everlasting Ezra Jennings appeared again. He had stopped Betteredge on the way out of the station and had asked who I was. Informed on this point, he had mentioned having seen me to his master, Mr. Candy. Mr. Candy, hearing of this, had himself driven over to Betteredge to express his regret at our having missed each other. He had a reason for wishing particularly to speak to me, and when I was next in the neighborhood of Prison Hall, he begged I would let him know. Apart from a few characteristic utterances of the better-edged philosophy, this was the sum and substance of my correspondent's letter. The warm-hearted, faithful old man acknowledged that he had written mainly for the pleasure of writing to me. I crumpled up the letter in my pocket and forgot it the moment after, in the all-absorbing interest of my coming interview with Rachel. As the clock of Hampstead Church struck three, I put Mr. Bruff's key into the lock of the door in the wall. When I first stepped into the garden, and while I was securing the door again on the inner side, I owned to having felt a certain guilty doubtfulness about what might happen next. I looked furtively on either side of me, suspicious of the presence of some unexpected witness in some unknown corner of the garden. Nothing appeared to justify my apprehensions. The walks were, one and all, solitudes, and the birds and the bees were the only witnesses. I passed through the garden, entered the conservatory, and crossed the small drawing-room. As I laid my hand on the door opposite, I heard a few plaintive chords struck on the piano in the room within. She had often idled over the instrument in this way when I was staying at her mother's house. I was obliged to wait a little, to steady myself. The past and present rose, side by side, at that supreme moment, and the contrast shook me. After the lapse of a minute, I roused my manhood and opened the door. Thanks for joining us for these two chapters from The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins. We'll return with the next two chapters from The Moonstone next week Sunday at 12 noon Eastern Time. Put it on your calendars, everyone. This should be a good one. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Stories for the Road and The Moonstone. Please do share our show with others, and we'll be back soon.
This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.